You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Capricorn 1, which came out in 1977 and was directed by Peter Hyams. It stars James Brolin, Elliot Gould, Brenda Vaccaro, Sam Waterston, O.J. Simpson, Hal Holbrook, Karen Black, David Huddleston, David Doyle, Lee Bryant, Denise Nicholas, Robert Walden, James B. Sicking, and Telly Savalas. The genre would be sci-fi conspiracy thriller. The most important event in recent history. What if it never really happened? We found out two months ago it won't work. You guys would all be dead in three weeks. What if man's greatest technological achievement was a multi-billion dollar fraud? Something's wrong, something big. They know I'm onto it and they try to kill me. This is Capricorn One. All we've got to do is get to any city, any place there are people. The only way that truth can come out is if they live long enough to tell us. How do we know this hasn't already happened? How do we know it won't happen again? Capricorn One, rated PG. I had the pleasure of first seeing this just a couple of years ago. And I have to be honest, I had no idea that this movie even existed before that. And apparently it was a big hit. Peter Hyams, the director, is a journeyman director who I've always followed. He made his share of pure genre films, including previous episode Running Scared, which remains one of my favorite buddy comedies, buddy cop movies of the 1980s. But he also did Outland, 2010, The Year We Make Contact, and what remains my personal favorite Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle, Sudden Death. This is the most powerful plastic explosive in the world. Now, none of these films could be considered top-flight cinema, but they were all very competently made and very entertaining. And the same goes for what was apparently a pretty popular film from 1977, which I had never heard of. I'm not sure why. Because this was a lot of fun. The film starts out with a very intriguing 1970s conspiracy thriller premise regarding faking a space mission to Mars. At the get-go, the movie feels pretty grounded and even sobering regarding this premise. We are dead. What? We're dead. Shit, I was such a terrific guy. We tried to establish radio contract, contact with the spacecraft, and we were unsuccessful. It landed off course. Why haven't they said anything to us? And if it never landed, either the heat shield separated or the chutes never opened. Either way, we are dead. The heat shield evidently separated from the command module, and as you know, the heat shield is the only protection the module has against the heat buildup on re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. The spacecraft disintegrated within 12 seconds after the loss of the heat shield. Right now, Kellaway is making a speech about what brave, wonderful guys we were. I cannot adequately describe how we feel but as it progresses, things start to get more incredulous and fortunately more fun too, because there is plenty more nuttiness to come. 
To say that the story increasingly starts to stretch credibility is an understatement. But who cares when you have just an abundance of riches to enjoy? A hair-raising sequence involving a car with no working brakes, driving 80-plus miles per hour through a crowded city. Elliot Gould is driving that car. O.J. Simpson. Yes, that O.J. Alongside Sam Waterston and James Brolin, all credibly playing a trio of astronauts trying to evade government spooks while maintaining their sanity, being isolated from the world for several months. David Huddleston. Yes, the big Lebowski himself, chewing the scenery as an embittered congressman trying to antagonize the vice president. A NASA scientist who digs a bit too deep into things and then gets wiped out from existence. Okay, listen to me. I got a tip from a friend, a good friend. Then he disappeared. He disappeared? Like he never existed. There's some lady living in his apartment. His apartment is all different. She said she's been living there for more than a year. I checked the building rental office. They have receipts from her for more than a year. I checked NASA personnel. They have no record that my friend ever worked there. They say they never even heard of him. So this friend of yours who works at NASA gives you a tip and then he disappears. And it turns out that he never lived in his apartment. He never worked at NASA. And this is the guy that gave you the tip on your cosmic scoop and you think I won't believe you? Somebody took a shot at me. When? Yesterday. Thank God I've got an alibi. I'm telling you the truth. Sharp banter between Elliot Gould's intrepid reporter and his editor, both commiserating as to how their lives are lame compared to reporters in the movies. And it all culminates in a dazzling climax which I will get to shortly. Now, are all of the loose ends of the plot tied together at the end? Not remotely. And that might be one thing, it's lack of tightness, that separates this from the other great paranoid thrillers of the 70s, like Parallax View, The Day of the Jackal. I don't think that's actually, though, what Hyams and crew were going for. They were aiming for something more absurd, yet very self-aware of its absurdity. And on that front, they succeeded with flying colors. Walker should be activating the tape soon with a pre-recorded message from the president. I am starting the tape. To the men of Capricorn One, I bring you greetings from your fellow Americans and all of the citizens of the world. You have crossed the last great frontier, and you have shown us what we are, people of different colors and religions and ideologies, however, a single people. You are the basic truth in us. You are the reality. We will never let you down. And now the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. This is definitely one of the more unjustly forgotten aspects of this gem of a movie, is its pulse-pounding orchestral score from the late, great Jerry Goldsmith, who was just delivering one banger genre score after another right around this time period in the 70s including previous episode Alien, The Omen, and of course, Star Trek The Motion Picture. (laughs) 
And for this movie, with its crazy plot and large scale, his music more than delivers. Booming drums, blaring brass, and punctuated with piercing bells. This is just a fun, tense, and rousing score, which never quits. There's basically a main title theme, which kicks in over the opening credits, and then repeats throughout with a few quieter variations. But just great stuff. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, the initial premise for this movie is all laid out within a genuinely juicy monologue delivered by the late, great Hal Holbrook. I remember when Glenn made his first orbit in Mercury. They put up television sets in Grand Central Station, and tens of thousands of people missed their trains to watch. You know, when Apollo 17 landed on the moon, people were calling up the networks and bitching because reruns of I Love Lucy were canceled. Reruns, for Christ's sake. I can understand if it was a new Lucy show. I mean, what the hell is a walk on the moon? But rerun. Oh, jeez. And then suddenly everybody started talking about how much everything cost. Was it really worth 20 billion to go to another planet? What about cancer? What about the slums? How much does it cost? How much does any dream cost, for Christ's sake? Since when is there an accountant for ideas? You know who is at the launch today? Not the president, the vice president, that's who. This early scene is just another reminder of just how fantastic Holbrook was at playing conspiratorial characters like this in memorable thrillers. The guys who lay out the exposition, if you will. Including previous episodes, All the President's Men, where I believe he played Deep Throat, and The Firm. He allows these characters to be menacing but entertaining at the same time. So there we are. After all those hopes and all that dreaming, he sits there with those flags behind his chair and tells me we can't afford a screw-up. And guess what? We had a screw-up. A first-class, bona fide, made-in-America screw-up. The good people from Con Amalgamate delivered a life support system cheap enough so they could make a profit on the deal. Works out fine for everybody. Con Amalgamate makes money. We have our life support system. Everything's peachy, except they made a little bit too much profit. We found out two months ago, it won't work. You guys would all be dead in three weeks. It's as simple as that. Disappointingly, though, his character just does not get as much screen time after the first act, where he is involved with so much of the setup of the movie. We hardly hear from him nor see his character. There's no real resolution. So it ends up feeling initially set up to be the main overriding villain in the first act, almost feels like an afterthought by the third act. That said, Holbrook still delivers with whatever he's given. He was one of the greats. So all I have to do is report that and scrub the mission. Congress has its excuse. The president still has his desk and we have no more program. What's 16 years, your actual drop in the bucket? All right, that's the end of the speech. Now we're getting to what they call the moment of truth. Come with me. 
This brings me to the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Now about that climax. Wow, it is a doozy. Occurring about 90 minutes into the movie, all spurred by the dogged efforts of Gould's Robert, the reporter, to try to rescue at least one of the surviving remaining astronauts. He has enlisted some help, as he, of course, does not know how to fly. Mr. Albain, how much do you charge to dust the field? $25. I'd like to hire your plane. That'd be $100. You said you charged $25. $25 to dust a field, but you ain't got no field because you ain't no farmer, which means you ain't poor, and I think you're a pervert. Okay, 100. 125. What? Because you said yes to 100 too quick, which means you can afford 125. This sequence involves two helicopters and a crop duster, and it certainly features some of the most impressive aerial stunt work which I've ever seen, seriously. Hyams has always excelled at action, and he's really strutting his stuff here with this sequence, which also, of course, features Telly Savalas, remember him? Hamming it up as the crop duster pilot. Just so much fun. And now the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. This movie has so many disparate elements which would just not blend together if there was not a competent and confident leader at the helm. From the 70s through the late 90s, Peter Hyams was just one of our most reliable genre directors. He's still with us, by the way. Part of what made him just such a stalwart performer was that he would often serve as his own cinematographer as well. Now, in the case of this film, he had someone else, Bill Butler, serve that role. But even the look of this film has his reliable stamp all over it. Everything is clear-cut, easy to follow, and most, if not all, special effects and our stunts are executed well. Now, Hyams did write the screenplay, and what strikes me about the success of this movie all these decades later is that the tension is there and sufficiently maintained for the entire runtime, but that the movie also has a genuine sense of go-for-broke fun, which is most demonstrated through the Elliot Gould character and his batshit running subplot. Now, I really hate to interrupt your meteoric career with something so plebeian as a legitimate story. However... A trainload of propane gas had the bad taste to derail near Galveston, and there's a whole town that just might blow up. So it would be just really peachy of you if you would join your film crew that's waiting for you on the plane at this very moment while we speak. That was some speech. I thought so. The 70s were certainly a peak time for conspiracy thrillers, which were often directed with sobering precision by the likes of Alan J. Pakula, Sidney Pollack, and John Schlesinger. And speaking of Schlesinger, this also includes previous episode Marathon Man, which is a film that I still really love. But wow, does it have a grim tone. should take better care of your teeth. You have a, quite a cavity here. Is it safe? Look, I tell you, I can't do it. As did other classics from this genre from that era, most of them, including the previously mentioned The Parallax View and The Conversation, both classics, by the way, which will likely be featured in future episodes. But overall, grimness was just the vibe for that time period, so it makes sense. That was the 70s. But what's wrong with just maybe one thriller just going for pure goofiness? There's a place for that as well. 
So for delivering a welcome, lighter respite to one of the more dominant genres of its era, Peter Hyams is certainly the MVP. My rating for Capricorn 1 would be four stars out of five. Apparently, you have to have been in just the right age range to have even been truly aware of the mere existence of this movie. And I apparently missed that cutoff by just a few years. This also happened to be a generally well-regarded sci-fi thriller, which had the misfortune of coming out the same year as Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Star Wars, the original Star Wars. So in retrospect, I'm gathering that its legacy just likely got swallowed up by those two other seminal films. It happens. The good news is that if you have not yet seen this movie, now might just be the right time to remedy that as this movie is streaming in a variety of places. So yes, if you're looking to watch Capricorn 1, it is currently streaming on Hulu, Peacock, Roku, Vudu, Tubi, Pluto TV, Freevee, and Shout TV. No excuse, you can find it. And that ends another high-flying review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.